Language and content in this episode may not be appropriate for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Some voices may come from voice actors, but the words are accurate to the interview described. By the time someone becomes a lot lizard, they have, by and large, already suffered enough. Truck stop sex work is a late stop on a tour of misery that almost always begins at home. And if it doesn't begin at home, it begins just outside of it, with bad boyfriends, bad uncles, and other predators with their foot already in the door. Interview any one lizard, or 20 and you'll hear a similar story. Their home life, or love life, was, to put it mildly, problematic. One way or another, their original inner circle was fractured around them, and like the fluid of a ruptured cell, they just sort of leaked out. They ran out into the interstitial space of society, into dark recesses, and places their parents didn't know, or places their boyfriends wouldn't find them. In almost every case, these are places that simply should not be. And no matter which is the original problem, the home life or the love life, once one of these goes bad, the other almost always follows. It's almost as if rational stability, especially for young women, is like a three-legged stool. You only have to break one leg to bring the whole thing crashing down. Bad boyfriends, especially in protective families, cause friction at home. Bad families normalize bad relationships, so vulnerable girls go looking for love, with no idea of what it actually looks like. Either way, one bad relationship can quickly become a death spiral of relational mayhem that leaves these girls clutching at anything they can hang on to. At which point, the wider community, the proverbial third leg of our crashing stool, and their last real hope for stability can do little to save them. When these most intimate relationships go bad, people leave them, especially young people, and they almost always fly into the arms of something worse. They are looking for literally anything else, and they find it. Only a few find a good Samaritan with the patience and resources to help them. The rest find exploitation, abuse, and in some cases, extreme violence. But because they're running away, they convince themselves they're being rescued and even loved by pimps and handlers who feast off their fear and insecurity. Every time I talk to truck stop sex workers or with their loved ones, I have this same conversation. I heard it again from the sister of Jane Doe number two, found in early 1985 in Campbell County, Tennessee and later identified as Tina Farmer. As Tina's sister Liza put it, their father was a mean ass, with whom she argued on a regular basis. At the age of 
She was 19, I was turning 18, and that's when her and dad got into it. And my dad was just, to be honest, a mean ass. That's just how he was. Her boyfriend was even worse. He would threaten to hurt Tina's family if she didn't do what he told her to, and he controlled what she shared with her family in terms of their relationship. Me and the family, November of 1984. When I told you they had Thanksgiving, she never mentioned marriage. Never. She didn't mention she was pregnant. She was there for the holidays. She had a great time. She's supposed to stay all night, her and Dana. And Richard called. He says, no, you can't. I'm coming to get you now. She goes, why? And then that's when mom got upset and goes, you're supposed to stay all night. What's going on? I don't know, but Richard's on his way. Tina and Dana left, and she whispered into mom's ear that she just didn't want nothing bad to happen to my mom. I guess he threatened us quite a bit. So Tina's caught between a controlling father and a controlling boyfriend who fought one another for control over her. When Tina's sister Liza intervenes on Tina's behalf, the older sister worries she's creating trouble for her family and leaves in the middle of the night. And Tina cried. I went inside. Me and Dad had some words and we went out into the van and slept in Scott's van. That was my boyfriend then. And I woke up the next morning. She had left me a note saying she didn't want to make trouble to me and Dad. And she just left. And to be fair to Tina's dad, he had a reason to be angry. He had a reason to be hostile, just not to Tina. Since the age of 14, her boyfriend Richard had been drugging her and pimping her out in their neighborhood. When did she first get into interaction with Richard? Like, when did that whole thing first start happening, and how old was she? 15 is when we met him at Maple Grove Trailer Park. So he was older, wasn't he? Yeah, we lived on Tampa Road. Yeah, like twice her age. Oh, I can see why your dad didn't want him around. We used to ask our parents if we could walk just around the block, because that's how it was. We couldn't leave the yard when we were little. We snuck out a lot, so we got to go around the block. I don't know if you know who Ricky Jr. is. He's 16 years older than her. Ricky Jr. was there, and he's hollering out the door at us. The girls would join Ricky Jr. in Liza's words to hang out a little bit and smoke some pot. Soon Ricky was attempting to hook the girls on harder drugs. So we'd go in there and they wanted to try other things. And me and Tina was like, oh, no way. So we went back home. I'd say maybe two weeks went by and Tina was gone. And I said, mom, where's Tina? She said, I don't know. She was looking for you. I was at Candy, my friend's house. So I'm around the block and they got their door open at the trail at Maple Grove, which the trailer still sits there to this day. And I'm hearing giggling. And I just happened to walk up just to ask Richard and Jill, have you seen Tina? And Tina's on the couch and she's kind of spaghetti. She'd been drugged? You can tell when someone's on something. 
even after they married, Richard was still prostituting Tina at the local truck stops. Lisa's friend Tammy recalls seeing her during that year. I knew her from school, and I was shocked to see her. And I said, I know you from school. And she said, yes, she was Tina McKenney. And she remembered you, didn't she? I'm Tammy, and we chit-chatted. She just had found out recently that she was pregnant. Then, I don't want to hurt no one's feelings, but I know Dickie was Bud's truck stop down Harding Street. That's when Bud was still there now. Blue Beacon, or Mr. Fuel. That's where she told me she worked a lot. Dickie was taking her down there and making her a prostitute. And that's why she was staying drugged, because that's what he was making her do. Shortly afterward, Tina went missing. Eliza and Tammy immediately suspected Dickie. But Dickie, Tammy's mother-in-law, Geneva, had another story, and one that appears to have been true. They said Tina had left him for good, for a truck driver. And Dickie said, and Geneva too, she was saying that she had run off with a truck driver. He told us that she had run off with the truck driver. She didn't run off with no truck driver. She couldn't stand truck drivers. She didn't like that. And that's when she came up missing. I know because I've never seen her again. And that's when they were telling everybody that she ran off with the truck driver. detective came and knocked on the door and I said is it Renee and he just gave me that solemn look it was the worst day ever the proof podcast is back with a new case and a new season 23 years ago 18 year old Renee Ramos went missing her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town I don't think that they arrested the right people it's about time somebody's trying to do something She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof wherever you get your podcasts and follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? As we deep dive into these chilling tales, we all need a moment of escape, a way to unwind without the shadow of the night creeping in. Here's where Recess Mood comes in. Crafted with real fruit and infused with mood-lifting magnesium and stress-balancing aptogens, Recess Mood is your guilt-free retreat. With just 20 calories, no added sugar, it's not just a sparkling water. It's a sanctuary and a can. Imagine unwinding during a gripping episode of Foul Play with a can of strawberry rose, or my favorite, raspberry lemon. Letting the stress melt away without the aftermath of alcohol. It's my little secret to staying balanced in the chaos of a busy life. You deserve a healthier way to unwind, to recharge, and to prepare for the next journey into the unknown. With foul play. And for the devoted foul play listeners, you deserve a healthier way to unwind. Head to takearecess.com slash Shane to get 15% off Recess Mood, 
your go-to alcohol replacement. The next time Tina was seen, she was wrapped in a blanket and dumped in a ditch near Jellicoe, Tennessee, on I-75. She had been gagged, hogtied and strangled, and for the next 33 years would simply be known as the Campbell County Jane Doe. She was identified on September the 6th, 2018, with the help of our crowdsourced detectives. As we had done for all the girls, we posted Tina's pictures on Facebook and lucked out when one of them breached Lisa. She reached out to us, and we then put her in the contact with the TBI. They were able to confirm her identity through simple fingerprinting. The following year, in December of 2019, semen from the blanket she was wrapped in was tested to an identical match, Jerry Leon Johns. It's possible that at the time of her death, Tina thought Johns was her boyfriend, that he was rescuing her from Dickie for a better life. While their relationship may have been strictly professional, she may have just been looking for a ride out of town. Either way, she got in the wrong truck and it cost her her life. The story of Jane Doe number three, also known as the Green County Jane Doe, later identified as Elizabeth Lamont, is much the same as Tina Farmer's. A few weeks ago, I spoke with her brother, Adam Lamont. I don't know where to start except to say that she was a great person. I remember she wanted to be a veterinarian. You know, take care of animals. She loved animals. Any animal. I remember my father went to slaughter chickens at his friend's house one time. It was time to slaughter them and sell them or whatever they were doing. And she was, oh my goodness, she was so upset. We all went up there with him and she locked herself in our car. And she was calling him a murderer and things like that. She was all broken up over it. She was all shook up because they were slaughtering those chickens. So she loved anything. You couldn't step on a spider around her. She was great. She would mother me and my older brother. We were much younger than her. And I remember sleeping with her at night and we'd play school together. So she was always the teacher or the one in charge. It was a lot of fun and memories of her, even though it was so long ago, but it was pretty fun prior to the marriage. The marriage he's referring to is their father's second marriage. To a woman with her own children, she had two young girls of her own. And unfortunately for Elizabeth, she wasn't looking for another one. She had some issues as a teenager. We grew up in a very abusive environment, and that's what ultimately put her in the youth detention center. You know, her rebelling against that abuse. But she was a great student. I have two other brothers as well. We have a couple step-siblings and one half-brother. But the four of us, we have my sister, myself, and two other brothers. My mother had passed away when we were very young. I was actually almost a year old, so Liz probably would have been three or four. And my father was single for several years after that and remarried. And unfortunately, when he remarried, he married this evil woman who was very abusive. The woman he married had two children, and they later had one together. So there was a lot of kids around, and he was just working a lot. And for one reason or another, our stepmother targeted me and my siblings. Adam still doesn't know the reason for this abuse. I'm not sure if she was... I don't know. She really targeted Liz at first. I'm not sure if she was jealous, if she was daddy's little girl. She came into the marriage with two little girls. I don't know. I just don't know. 
I was young and I've thought about it many times, and I wonder if it was jealousy. She was a straight-A student and just a great kid, so I don't know. It made no sense. At the end of the day, the reason doesn't matter. Elizabeth and her siblings were eventually forced to stay indoors, locked in their bedrooms and alienated from their friends. We used to play baseball in our neighborhood, and she would play too, but she didn't get into anything in school. Unfortunately, after our father got married, none of us participated in because of his new wife. But it was almost like being locked up the entire time they were married. So there wasn't much extracurricular activity or anything. I asked Adam if he would describe his sister as shy. No, she wasn't shy at all. She had plenty of friends. I remember when I was a kid. Of course, I'm talking prior to my father getting married. Everything changed once my father got married to my stepmother. But prior to that, there was girls over. There were sleepovers, all that stuff. Just a typical kid. But after that, it changed. Everything. I asked him if the word hostage was appropriate. Yeah. We were grounded to our room for 10, 12 years. Before long, Elizabeth was sneaking out and her mother called the police. They took her to the nearby Youth Development Centre, or YDC. The YDC is one step above juvenile detention in that the campus is open and its inhabitants are not locked inside. Already alienated from her friends, Elizabeth's admission to the YDC cut her off from her younger siblings, whom she had once mothered. With the last meaningful relationships now gone from her life, things began to change quickly. We saw her once in a while. She didn't want to be in YDC. She hadn't done anything wrong. Well, I guess she had, technically speaking, but she was rebelling against something that shouldn't be going on. It happened to her. She was totally justified. So while she's at YDC, she started escaping from there. She'd run off. And because it's an open campus over there, I guess there are ways to get out. But I think she did that a couple times. According to Adam, Elizabeth had a history of hitchhiking, and his dad tried to wean her off the practice without success. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, she would hitchhike. She was very brave and very strong for her size. But yeah, she was a very brave lady. My father told us a story that he told her about doing that. And she said, I can handle myself. And he grabbed her and, like, held her really sternly and went, okay, what are you going to do? I guess she didn't get the warning or whatever. He tried to show her that you can't handle this. Yeah, she told me she'd been to Florida. She told me that herself, that she had hitchhiked to Florida. I guess a lot of people were doing it back in those days. Elizabeth's body was found at approximately 11.20 a.m., on Tuesday, April the 16th, 1985, in a ditch beside I-81 in Greene County, Tennessee. She was completely naked and had been stabbed and tortured. Her skull was fractured from a blow to the head. A forensic analysis of her remains was submitted six days later, on April the 22nd, to TBI agent David Davenport, part of which reads as follows. Soft tissue of the body were red and soft. 
The body gave off a strong odor of decay and was covered with maggots, flies, and beetles. The body was badly decomposed, yet exhibited little or no animal gnawing. The decay rate of a body is variable and dependent on air temperature, humidity, rainfall, location of the body, above ground, etc., and many other factors. However, based on the degree of decay, extensive maggot activity, odor of the body, mummification, and exposure of the long bones, it is estimated that the body had been dead approximately three to six weeks. The fact that Elizabeth's remains were skeletal at the time of their discovery obviously complicated the investigation. Most of the story of every murder resides in the body's soft tissue, the muscle and fat, and skin. And in Elizabeth's case, most of this was gone, or at least compromised. But detectives did have one piece of physical evidence, a book of matches found near the body. They had apparently been dropped by the killer, or fallen out of the truck when the body was dumped. This matchbook was printed with the name of a Houston strip club. It read, The Skinny Rooster, Eight Beautiful Girls and One Ugly One. The address was 5834 Wenatchee Road, an out-of-the-way location in a small industrial part of the city. But Houston was almost a thousand miles removed from the redhead murders, and it was common at the time to collect matchbooks. It could have been anyone from anywhere who dropped this one in the snow that night. In fact, Houston had never even been mentioned in the investigation, or so it was thought, until one investigator remembered that it had and asked, isn't that where John's parents live? As it happens, it was where John's parents lived, and when Jerry was in town, he lived with them in the sprawling metropolitan area of Greater Houston, covering more than 10,000 square miles. The skinny rooster was located less than two miles from the Johns' residence, a mere 10-minute walk or a two-minute drive away. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. But that evidence was obviously circumstantial and John's was never prosecuted for reasons we'll discuss in a moment. The case just sort of lingered, as these cases tend to do. And this wasn't all on law enforcement. Elizabeth wasn't even reported missing until 2017, 33 years after her disappearance, at which point her information was finally entered into the National Crime Information Centre, or the NCIC. Adam submitted his DNA to the UNT Centre for human identification for comparison with unidentified murders. And on November the 13th, 2018, they found a match with mitochondrial DNA of the Green County Jane Doe. While Johns was never tried for her murder or any of the redhead murders, TBI investigators had little doubt as to who was responsible. 
Detective David Devonport, the man to whom Elizabeth's forensic analysis was addressed, was, let's say, unreserved in his assessment of Jerry Johns. I think he was a serial killer and a psychopath, and he preyed on these women. If you have an image in your head of a stereotypical Southern investigator with a heavy draw, street-savvy, and world-weary intuitions, you're picturing Detective Davenport, the type of character who takes pride in being known as a no-BS kind of guy. Davenport interviewed Johns multiple times in connection with the Redhead murders. He was very arrogant. Of course, adamant that he admitted that he knew this gal, but nothing had happened. However, he was driving her car. He stole her car. He's referring to Linda Shack and her blue Datsun 280ZX Turbo. Yeah, and jewelry. We found her jewelry. Larry Johnson was a major crimes investigator. They knew that we were working on it, and because of John's history, when he got out of the truck driver's shelter, he called me. I was living in Knoxville when they got him. He's very arrogant, and you can tell by his appeals that he was, he, he didn't go down without a fight. I asked Davenport if the TBI had any idea why Johns was committing these crimes. If we could answer that question, you're going to get so many different ways. Psychopath, sociopath, antisocial, depending on what shrink you talk to. Abnormal psychologist. Bottom line is there's a lot of evil people out here, and he was one of them. You can hang any moniker you want. Sociopath, a narcissist, psychopath on him. But he was basically evil, and he had no regard for human life. That's the way I see Jerry Johns. He's one of the few that you talk to where you look him in the eye, and he has no soul. It's all empty. I asked Davenport if he had seen this before. Not a whole lot. Not people. Most people have a conscience. Jerry Johns had no conscience. And like I said, there's been a handful that we've talked to. And I'm not saying crazy, because there's a difference in being criminally insane and doing stuff like that than having no conscience and no, no remorse or the ability to distinguish between right and wrong. In Davenport's opinion, Jerry Johns was not crazy. He just liked to kill people. And with what we've learned from Phyllis, we have some idea why. With all of this evidence and all this certainty among the TBI, why wasn't Johns ever tried for the Redhead murders? I mean, he had just been convicted in the same courthouse for a nearly identical crime, trying him again for the successful strangulation and murder of six other Redheads at similar locations off the I-40 corridor it seemed to be a bit of a freebie. But his prosecution never made it to trial, and the reason for this is actually quite simple. The last of the redhead murders could not have been him. When S.B. Pilgrim disappeared into a white Admiral refrigerator in a ravine in southern Kentucky on April the 1st, 1985, Jerry Johns was doing push-ups in Prison Orange in a 10 by 10 cell at the Knox County Jail. He was awaiting trial for the forced abduction and attempted murder of Linda Shuck. 
Next episode, we'll take a closer look at Espy's puzzling death and try to make sense of conflicting evidence. We're convinced that when we do this, it puts the onus right back on Jerry Johns.